Right on. So we come back uh, to Zechariah, and, and maybe I just bring folks up to speed in case you haven't been here. The context of this book is this, is that Zechariah, uh, the, the context of Zechariah s- surrounds the return of the exiles to uh, Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon. They came back to Jerusalem, a city that was in ruins, and they came back to reestablish their worship practices. They came back to uh, rebuild uh, the temple of the Lord and establish a place for worshiping the Lord. And as we've seen in this book, they got so far as, as laying the foundation of the temple and then in the midst of all of the opposition and the hostility of their enemies and, and the difficulties that were just surrounding them in terms of trying to make a life in a city that had been destroyed uh, and ruined, they just stopped working on the house of the Lord. And uh, they had halted the work for 15 years. And so onto the scene comes Haggai, onto the scene comes Zechariah. These two prophets, their, their ministries kind of complement one another. Their preaching complements one another. And, and Haggai called them back to the, to the work. And then Zechariah gave this message just like you physically return to the land. You need to spiritually return uh, to your God. And specifically... Zechariah spoke to the hopelessness that the people were sensing and that they were, that they were feeling. Uh, and he warned them that they should not make the same mistakes that their forefathers had made and resulted in the anger of the Lord. And so they, they needed to return to hope. They needed to return to the Lord. And as we've seen, the result was that the people repented and they got back about the work. And In response to that, three months later, the Lord woke Zechariah up one night and he gave him eight visions. And we looked at those. We kind of zoomed out last week. This morning, we're going to zoom back in. Uh, We looked at the the visions that the Lord showed Zechariah, visions of hope. We saw things like this. The Lord said, "Are, are you in a shady place? You need to know God's watching over you. Are weapons being formed against you? He's the force that breaks those weapons. Do you feel like a city without defenses? You need to know the Lord is your defense. He's like a wall of fire surrounding you. Is the adversary there accusing you? You need to know that in Christ you have an advocate. Is the responsibility too heavy? You need to know that there is an unending source of oil that comes from the Holy Spirit. Is evil present everywhere? You need to know that God has sent his law and evil will bow to his law. Is the material world and the commerce system of this world so polluted? You need to know this, that the Lord has kept a lid on it and he's going to wipe it out. Is there a need for administration and management and government in this world? Well, the Lord is sending forth his riders from mountains of brass, and he is bringing forward his government in this world. Eight visions of hope. And this morning, we pick up the the account of Zechariah back in chapter 6, verse 9. And and just before we read this morning's text, let me me set the table a little bit. Comment that as, as as you read this text, plain and simple, it seems that after Zechariah had these eight visions, right after it, the Lord began to speak to him. The word of the Lord came to him that very night. 
And it seems to me as though the Lord said to him, I'm going I'm to show you these visions and then I'm going to give you something to do. For Zechariah, this was, this was the application, I would say. This, this is the application that goes along with what he had been shown. And, and I love that because that's how the Lord works. When the Lord, when the Lord shows you something, it's not just to, to teach you or to fill your head with knowledge. It's to get your feet moving for the kingdom of God. To get rubber on the road to make application. And the visions of hope were pointless unless Zechariah's feet moved in response to what God had shown him. And the same is true for us. Knowledge, the accumulation of knowledge, knowing the word of God is pointless unless it moves your feet. The goal is always application. And so in our own times with the Lord, in our times together as a church, we should always be looking for the application. Okay, God, you've shown me this. Now what are you asking me to do in response to that? How can I put my feet to what God has shown me or spoken to me? And here's the beauty of that. Application, when we make application in our lives of the word of God, it always results in something. It results in this, more revelation. Application always leads to more revelation. It's like, you know, when you do, you do a job, maybe you're new on a job, and the person training you says, okay, well, you're going to do this task, and you're going to do this task this way. And so you go about the task, and you just kind of do what you're told, and as you're on the job for a while and you get more familiar with the job, the lights turn on and you go, oh, now I realize why this person told me to do this job this way. There's a method to the madness. And what happens is, is, is that you get further revelation as application happens in your life. And so let's check out uh, what the Lord asks of Zechariah. We're going to read the, the whole text that we're going to look at this morning, which is just a, a, a few verses here. It says this in verse 9, chapter 6. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, Haldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man, whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. As a reminder, to Helam, Tobijah, Jedidiah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. How crazy. Again, let me just read verse 9 and 10 to you. It says, And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles, Haldai, Tobijah, Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Now, 
It's at this point that the Lord tells Zechariah something that I think is kind of crazy. This blows my mind a little bit. He says, three wise men are coming from Babylon. That's what he tells him. Three men are coming from Babylon. It's kind of a crazy foreshadow of the wise men, isn't it? He says, Heldei, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Now, now I, I would say this, you know, if you're surprised to find three wise men here, you're not alone. I was surprised. I heard the story of one woman. Uh, she said to her friend, a virgin birth I can believe in, but three wise men, I'm not so sure. <laughs> so, and I was surprised too this morning, okay? Now, now, now this, this is an amazing foreshadow, isn't it, of what the wise men of the East, they, who came at Jesus' birth, Three men were merchants, Jews who brought gifts. They brought gifts of silver and gold, just like the wise men of the New Testament. Now, of all the Jews living in Babylon who were there in exile, just 42,000 had returned uh, from Jerusalem 15 years earlier. A majority of the nation was still in the east. And so these men came. They were a Jewish delegation. They came from Babylon bringing gifts of gold and silver to help those who had returned and uh, to help those who were about the heroic work of building the temple of the Lord. Now, to me, that's amazing because, and here's why. You know, those who had returned from exile, those who had come, the 42,000 who had come 15 years earlier, for them as they were working to rebuild the temple, they had stumbled, you know. They had they'd pressed the pause button. On the work, they had lost sense of hope. Hopelessness had actually gripped their heart. The hope, uh, the, hopelet, the hope that had led them to Jerusalem in the first place was now deflated. They were discouraged. They weren't about the work. And that's how they saw the situation from Jerusalem. But the exiles back in Babylon saw the situation from a whole different perspective. They looked at those men and women who had returned to Jerusalem and they said this, those people are heroes. Those people who have left Babylon and gone to Jerusalem, they, they are heroes. They are doing what I didn't have the guts to do. You know, they, they left a comfortable life in Babylon. They risked health and, and well-being to live in a city that's in ruins uh, all because of a vision to do something for the Lord, to build the temple of the Lord and to do what God called them to do. The, they're heroes. And it makes me think perspective is everything, isn't it? You know, it makes me wonder how many times we let situations and circumstances lead us down the path of hopelessness. We feel hopeless and yet heaven is looking and cheering on and saying, hero, you say hopeless, heaven says hero. You know, I traveled down the path of, of hopeless, hopelessness and, and all along heaven is sending gifts to help. Heaven is sending gifts to help in my situation and my circumstances. And, and when we are hopeless, heaven cries hero and heaven sends help. I love that. I really believe that that's how God sees his people. And that's why we need the word of the Lord to help us to return to hope, to run to the stronghold of hope. But I think there's a flip side to this whole story too. 
It's not one of, of heroes. It's one of tragedy, actually. And that's of the people that were back in Babylon. You see, the exiles who had stayed back in, in Babylon, they shared in the opportunity to go to Jerusalem. But for the sake of comfort, you know, for the sake of not wanting to get out of the boat, they shrunk from the call of God that was upon them. They saw the hardship and the danger and they opted out. They actually chose Babylon over Jerusalem. They sent their donation, you know, send my donation that's intended to aid those who are in Jerusalem. But that's the extent of it. I mean, I'm not going to go any further than that. And I think that too many Christians make the same mistake. They shrink back from service. They shrink back from personal service. They shrink back from the cost of the kingdom. And in lieu, they're quite willing to send money. Quite willing to give some money to the cause to contribute some gold or some silver, but that's as far as it's going to go. And I wouldn't call it a tithe. It's kind of more like a subscription maybe. You know what I mean by a subscription? To say that you subscribe to something, it's, it means that you, you express or you feel an agreement. Oh, I agree with what they're doing. But that's as far as it's going, so let me just, you know, pay my subscription fee. And for some, subscribing is in lieu of, of sacrificing ease and sacrificing comfort. And you can just watch while others do the work and you feel like you're involved. And that should not be. That should not be. There, there is something sacrificial and costly about following Jesus. He said this, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, there's certainly a sense that these, these people that had made the trek to Jerusalem, they were losing their life for the sake of the kingdom. And the question for you and I is this. You know, subscriber or hero? Three wise men. Three wise men. We don't know, but I, I imagine that 15 years earlier, when they had the opportunity to participate, when they had the opportunity to be involved of something of greater value, to leave the comforts of Babylon and to take the step of faith in a venture for the kingdom, they weighed the cost and they said, no, too costly. Not willing to make the sacrifice. But as they stayed back in Babylon, the, the, the heroic uh, kingdom continued to woo them and to appeal to them. And after 15 years, these, these men chose to participate. They, they'd come bearing gifts, three wise men. And you could ask, you know, I think it's a fair question. Were they really wise men? Or is this just the preacher stretching the story this morning? Were they really wise men? Well, you know, it made me think of, I say, yes, they were wise men. It reminded me of, the words of the martyred missionary, Jim Elliot. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Those three men gave up Babylon for Jerusalem and that's always a wise choice. That is always the wise choice. Not the easy choice, but it's definitely the wise choice. And so they came 
bearing gifts of gold and silver. And the Lord, Lord told Zechariah, verse 11, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. So the, so the Lord directed the prophet Zechariah to, to take the gold and silver and to make a crown. Now the original language, the, he, the original Hebrews expresses the word crown in a plural form. Some of your Bibles will actually say crowns. Others will say just, just crown. And it's an interesting thing because what it's actually expressing in its plural form is the elaborate nature of this crown. Make a very elaborate crown. One that makes me think of a cake, you know, like a layered cake. Make a crown that has layers to it. There's parts to it. One on top of another. And you're going to place it on the head of the same man. And, and so then the, this, this crown was to be placed on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Now at that time, they're under Babylonian rule. Israel doesn't have a king. Joshua was the high priest. He was not in the line of David. He was not of uh, royal descent. But this was a significant prophetic act. We know that. This was a, a rehearsal describing and predicting something that was going to happen in the future. So the Lord tells Zechariah to say something when he places the crown on Joshua's head. Look at verse 12. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is Branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So we get who this is. This is a prophetic picture uh, of someone, and we know who it is. Who is it? It's Jesus. Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer, but it's the right answer. He is the branch. Before the exile and destruction of Jerusalem, both Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied pre-exilic about the coming of the Messiah and they both called him the branch. Calvin's going to flash up these scriptures on the screen to you. I'm going to read to you Isaiah 11 verse 1 and 2 from, my, from the prophet Isaiah. Jump one more, buddy. He told me he'd be on the ball. And then he chirped me before I started. But I got him. Okay. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2, it says this. Isaiah prophesied, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Jeremiah said this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And so what Zechariah is revealed, what's revealed to the prophet Zechariah is that the branch, this man, the branch who is coming, is going to hold two offices. He's going to be both a priest and a king. That's why Joshua, the high priest, was being crowned. It was a, a prophetic picture of Jesus who would be both king and priest. Now maybe we think, so what? You know, big deal. I know this stuff, man. The Bible tells us. The New Testament tells us. He's a king and he's a priest. I get it. What's the big deal? But, but the offices of, 
of king and priest had always been separate. That's what we have to understand. It's like separation of church and state. Mess with that with our, in our country and what are people going to do, right? No, no, church and state are separate. And this was an announcement of new government that people had never heard of before. Anyone here love to make a trip into Costco? I love that. You know, we always look forward to that in our household. And you know what I really look forward to is the samples, right? <laughs> when you go to Costco, you all know the deal. That's why you're laughing. I have my route planned out before I arrive, right? <laughs> Front entrance, bakery, meat department, deli, frozen food section, through the grocery aisles. And then, you know, when you end up at the till, there's usually some chocolate or some protein bars or something like that. And if you do okay, you don't need a hot dog afterwards because you're full. <laughs> so you can just stop where a latte. I like their lattes for a buck fifty. You cruise the samples. Well, here's the thing. You could say that God had given Israel a sample of every kind of leadership. Every kind of leadership that you could have. He had already given them a sample. You know, when you look at the history of the nation of Israel, there's an easy way for dividing up the different periods of, of uh, their leadership. If you take 2,000 years of history before Jesus, from Abraham to Jesus, you can divide it nice and neat into 500-year sections, and you see it. Four 500-year periods. During the first 500 years, from 2000 to 1500 BC, they were a people led by the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. During the next 500 years, from 1500 to 1000, they were a people led by prophets. Started with Moses, it wrapped up with Samuel, the prophets and the judges in between. From, from there, from 1000 to 500 BC, they were led by kings. It started with Saul, David, and it ended with uh, Jehoiakim. But then from 500 BC, right where this story is, right where this word to Zechariah is at, uh, to the coming of Jesus, 500 BC to the coming of Jesus, the priests led them. And during that period, we know this, that the priests formed a, a council, right, called the Sanhedrin. It was the governing council of the nation. It was, it was this mixture of spiritual leadership, or, or the, the, spiritual peop, the spiritual leaders and the actual leaders of the nation. The Supreme Council that was led by the high priest. And so when you look at it as, as Israel tasted all the samples of leadership, what you see is this, is that every kind of leadership failed them. What they really needed was one leader who would combine all of the offices. Which of course is what we get in Jesus, isn't it? That had never been the case. It's an amazing story in the Old Testament when King Uzziah, King Uzziah decided presumptuously one day that he would go into the temple and that he would burn incense upon the altar of incense in the, in the holy place. And as he's going in there, an altercation had, in, ensued between himself and the priests. And the priests were saying, you can't go in there, you're not a priest. And he's like, I'm the king, who do you think you're talking to? I'm going in if I want to go in. And he went into the presence of the Lord and while the argument was ongoing and he was going about giving this, this offering to the Lord, the Bible tells us that leprosy began to break out on his forehead. 
Because he had entered the presence of God without, uh, without approval. And the priests watched as the leprosy began to break out on him. And before he could die, they lay hold of him. And they rushed him out of the presence of God. And the Bible tells us that Uzziah spent the rest of his days living out as a, as a leper. He was still king, but he was a leper and lived in seclusion. And his son became his vassal who oversaw the kingdom until his death. And so the, the account of King Uzziah proves just how stringent the separation was for the people between church and state, between priest and king. And so the prophet Zechariah did something that blew everybody's mind. It was unmistakable. The Lord told him, combine the two offices of priest and king and do it in one man. The branch. I love this time of year. I love, I, I just love springtime. I like, all of a sudden my yard turns into something that I like. All, all winter it's like dreary and you're like, oh, come on, rain, stop. And then the spring comes and everything just begins to transform and change. And I totally enjoy that about my yard. And, and, and you see these trees that you've planted, they just begin to blossom and the leaves come out and and all of these things. And one of the things you see that as you, as you look at God's creation is this, is that a branch is an extension of the fruitfulness of the root. The branch is an extension of the fruitfulness of the root. The branch bears the leaves. The branch bears the fruit. The branch bears life and growth. And the branch bears all the beauty of the root that I'm unable to see because my eyes just can't penetrate the soil. I can't see what's happening below the surface. And so the branch reveals to me the life that is happening beyond what my eye can see. The branch tells me the root lives. The root lives. The branch tells me not just that the root lives, but the root thrives. It's thriving. And the branch is associated with fruitfulness. The branch is associated with life. Jesus used that image himself. He, he said... I'm the vine and you're the branches. Remain in me and you'll bear much fruit. And so Zechariah, it's revealed to him that this branch is both priest and king. You know mankind's nature demands a priest. That's the nature of humanity, of men and women. Our, our lives, whether we realize it or not, expressed a demand for a priest. That's the universal reality of humanity. Anywhere among the common people of this world. You know, if you were just to go amongst the common people of this world, you know this. If you've traveled at all, you know this. You will find altars. You will find idols. You will find people who, a, a group of people who have chosen someone from amongst themselves and, and they've made that person separate and they've designated them as their priest or their witch doctor or their shaman or their this or their that. And that person is to function as their mediator and their priest between God and themselves. Our culture is no different. Our culture maybe to us appears a little elusive how we spot that. You know, because we have so many in our culture that say, I don't believe in God. You know, I, 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 I choose science and I choose evolutionary theory. But the reality is, is that, that that's their religion. They, they deny the existence of God, but they still rely on someone else to mediate for them. They still rely on someone else to think for them. 
Richard Dawkins maybe becomes their priest. They rely on him to mediate between themselves and their atheism and their theories. They rely on Dawkins to, to mediate for them while they go about the common everyday duties of mankind, humankind. And when challenged, they go, well, I believe in science. They soothe their conscience with, with the argument that there is no God. And yet their nature as well demands a need. Reveals a demand for a need for a priest. Whether they realize it or not. The need for a priest reveals that they see themselves as falling short. Sinful. It reveals a desire to have someone else do the propitiation and win God's favor so that they might approach and be, things could be satisfied and they would be okay. And we know what the word of God tells us. That Jesus Christ is our great high priest. That Jesus Christ met the craving of human hearts. He is our mediator. He gave himself on the cross for our sins. He provided for our sin and our guilt. And as a faithful high priest, he reveals the mercy and the grace of our Father in heaven. You know, just as mankind's nature demands a priest, the nature of humanity also demands a king. God had designed the nation of Israel to meet this need himself. He said, you're not to be like the other nations. Judges in uh, 1 Samuel tell us the story that though God was supposed to be their king, that the people of Israel lived like they didn't have a king. Every man did as he pleased. Everyone lived like there was no king. And at times God would raise up prophets to lead the nation. He'd done so with Samuel. But when you read 1 Samuel, what you read is, is that as, as Samuel aged, the nation saw that Samuel's sons were not righteous or just men. And fearing the vacuum after the leadership of, of, of Samuel, the nation demanded a king. They said, we want to be like nations around us. We want a king. So the Lord gave them Saul. And Samuel warned them. Having a king of their choosing, what that would be like, because Saul was the king of their choosing. What that would be like to have a king who's a man of the flesh. He said this, flash it up on the screen there, Calvin. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1. I'm going to read it to you. Sorry, verse 11 to 18, it says this. This is Samuel speaking. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Verse 13. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tent of your grain and of your vineyards and will give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take 
your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. Verse 17, he will take the tent of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. What was the warning of Samuel? Your king will take from you. But men need a leader. Humanity needs a king. One to judge them, one to go before them, one to fight their battles. And human beings will put up with being taken from if the king will just lead them. You know, the days when you have no king, like in the days of the judges, when every man does as he pleases, those are not days of prosperity. Those are not days of contentment. Those are not days of, of peace. Those are days of danger. And the nature of a human king is this, is that he's a taker. But at least he'll lead you. He might take from you, but at least he'll lead you into battle. At least you'll have a king. And that's where the kingship of Jesus is so remarkably different, isn't it? King Jesus. His nature is not one who takes. He's not the king who takes. He's the king who gives. It's so opposite the, the norm. He's the king who serves. He serves us first and we in turn uh, want to serve him. He, he gave everything for us and we in turn give him everything. You give yourself for me, oh king. I give you my life. F.B. Meyer said it like this. I like this. As a priest, Jesus pleads the merit of his blood. As a king, he exerts his power on our behalf. As a priest, he pacifies the guilty conscience. As a king, he sends the thrills of the victorious life into our spirits. As a priest, he brings us nigh unto God. As a king, he treads out our enemies under his feet. On one hand, we get all the benefit of his cross and his passion. And on the other, all the benefit of his resurrection and session at the right hand of God. King and priest, the branch, Jesus. And it's so important that we, that we think about this dual ministry and role of Jesus as priest and king. Take a look at verse 12 for a moment. In the Hebrew text, the prophecy begins like this. Behold the man. Behold the man. Those are the very words that Pilate used when he presented a beaten Jesus who had been scourged before the people of Jerusalem. Latin, ecce homo. Behold the man. But in Zechariah's vision, this isn't a humiliated Jesus. We're asked to behold a triumphant Jesus, a priest and a king. And Zechariah prophesied that this priest and king is going to branch out. This speaks of the fruitfulness that's going to come from him. The outreaching life of the Messiah that will bring forth much fruit. He will come where there's little hope of promise. Unexpectedly, like a, like a root out of dry ground, he'll spring up. And Zechariah says, he will build the temple of the Lord. 
The branch will rebuild the temple. This isn't the temple that Zerubbabel's building and the people are building at this point in time. Zechariah, the Lord tells Zechariah, the branch will build the temple. The temple of his people. In the New Testament, Peter picks up this theme, actually. First Peter. Peter, of course, it's interesting that Zechariah is called the prophet of hope, and Peter's called the apostle of hope, and Peter just picks up right where Zechariah leaves off. And Peter said this, 1 Peter 2.5, it's going to come up on the screen. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, you think of this story with Zechariah, we, we know this. The temple was in ruins. There in Jerusalem, all that was there was a foundation. Just a foundation. Uh, all seemed hopeless. Heaps of rocks and debris had to be moved and there was so much construction to happen. There was so much work that lay in front of the people and what Zechariah is being told is this, is that the people had to understand that it was he, not they, that would finish the work. The branch would finish the work. And you know, this morning I would say this to you, the Holy Spirit wants you to know the same thing. That if you are hopeless, that if you feel the task is too great, that you, if you feel the debris that is in the way to be moved and the work to be done is just so overwhelming and I can't see the forest from the trees, I don't know how this is going to work out with my family. I don't know how this is going to work out with my job. You know, it's like, how can I even be about the work of the kingdom when I'm so overwhelmed by life? Please understand this. He will finish the work. He will finish the work for his glory and for your good. For his glory and for your good. You feel hopeless, but heaven would say, you're a hero, my friend, because you are in the game. Yeah, but it's debris and it's this and it's that. It's hopeless. Heaven would say, you're a hero. You're in the mess working for his glory. Do not lose heart. In fact, you can work with a new, new energy. You can work with a new courage, knowing just like they did in, in Zechariah's day, that you are a fellow worker with God who's going to finish the work. You know, isn't it true that just sometimes it feels like the work's like never done? Never done. And, and I mean the work of the kingdom when I say that. You're like, oh man, it's never done. I don't know when this is going to work out for us. I don't know how this is going to play out. Lord, I've been praying for this. And sometimes, I mean, we all get there. You feel like quitting and you wonder if it's worth it. And then the Lord reminds you that he is a priest, that he is a king. And we come to understand that, that we have much less to do with the work that is being done than we first thought. You know, we're not so important or not so necessary as we had first thought. You know, on my best day, 
on my best day, I'm a greenhorn and he's the master builder. That's you and me on our best. And you realize, Lord, I'm just so happy to be in your crew, to be a part of your kingdom, to have you as my priest. Verse 14, and this text goes on, it says this, And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, and Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. It's interesting there, that name Hen means uh, grace. It's like, it's like a, it's a, a nickname the Lord gives to the son of Zephaniah. He calls him something, calls him Joshua earlier. I think that's what it was. Verse 15, And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. You know, after Zechariah had made the crown and he had put it on Joshua's head, and made this declaration, spoke these words to him, prophesied about the branch, he was to take the crown and he was to put it away. And he was to place it somewhere until the temple was completed. And then when the temple was completed, he was to put it away inside the temple. And, it, and, and this crown was to function as a reminder of the wise men and the branch. The priest king who would come and bring peace and holiness to his people and would ultimately build the, build the temple. Zechariah also said that the crown would be a reminder that many people from far off shall come and help build the temple. That's what he said. I like that. You know, I'd say this to you this morning that you might not know what God is building in your life. You might be wondering what he's using you to do. You might be losing heart. Maybe in the battle of hopelessness, you're losing ground. But let me tell you, in the eyes of heaven, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you are a hero. And let me say this, you, you, you probably are doing more than you know for the kingdom of God. You're a servant of the Most High King. You're in His employ. Do not be discouraged and don't desert Him. And, and the warning at the end of this chapter is, is that these things will come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord. You know, I read that and I say, let others quit, but not us. Let others quit, but not us. Paul said this in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. We'll close with this verse. These verses, he said this. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Don't those words make so, so much sense and mean so much as you consider them in light of what is going on in Zechariah's story? You're being grown into a temple. We're being grown into a temple, built together as a dwelling place for the Spirit of God. You know, this morning, I just leave you with these thoughts. You feeling hopeless? 
heaven looks on and says, here, oh, the Father has gifts for you. He, he, gifts to encourage you. Gifts to build you up. Gifts to strengthen you. Lay hold of those this morning as we, in a few minutes, worship and come to the table. You know, maybe life for you, Christian life, is just life in Babylon. Be a wise man or woman. Not just a subscriber to the kingdom of God, but go all the way into what God is calling you. And so uh, I can invite the worship team to come. Would you guys stand with me? We're going to come to the Lord's table. let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for the hope that's in you. Lord, we want to be men and women who lay hold of that. Father, so easily we, we look around and we see the, dro- the, the, the rubble and the debris that we're living in the midst of and we go, oh, is this ever going to be done? Are you ever going to work in this situation? And Lord, I just thank you for the promise of your word that you have said, he who has begun a good work in us will bring it to completion. You'll finish it. And so Lord, as we consider your word this morning, we uh, in our hearts just say to you, we trust you to finish the work, Lord. And God, in the midst of that, we ask for the gift of strength and courage and hope to continue on, Lord to continue on because you're the master builder at work in our hearts and our lives and we trust you to finish the work. Fill us, your people, with hope, Lord, because we put our hope in Jesus, our high priest and our king. And we thank you for that this morning, Jesus. We thank you for that this morning, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that's in you this morning, Lord. And just today, I want to give that opportunity. So I just ask that everyone would uh, bow their head, close their eyes, just give their neighbor respect around them. And maybe, you know, you hear about this king and this priest, Jesus, this branch who brings life and hope and who's a master builder and who wants to finish this work in our lives. I tell you about him this morning. But I also want to give you opportunity to meet him today. To meet him for yourself. And so if you'd like to just meet this King Jesus, I just ask that you would pray along with me just this prayer, okay? And so you just repeat after me. Jesus, I want to know you. I invite you into my life. Come and be my king. Come and be my priest. I've heard today that you gave your life on a cross to win God's favor and to save me. And I've heard today that you're a king who doesn't take, but who gives. A king who gives. I've heard today that you gave yourself for me. And so, Jesus, this morning, 
I give myself to you. I give myself to you.